Welcome to Podship Perth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. So about six, seven months ago, right out of the blue, I get this call from my old friend, Daniel. I'm not exactly sure what he's asking. Hey, Jared, what's up, man? I'm getting a team together of people to go up to the Sierras and check out these rock glaciers. You ever heard of those? Mm, no. <laughs> I mean, I've heard of glaciers, but I've never heard of a rock glacier. Who's going to go? Well, people who studied rock glaciers. <laughs> Basically, they're these huge just bodies of ice underneath the earth or under the rock. And if someone doesn't point them out to you, you can't see them. I said, of course I'll go. Three days in the Sierra, I'll do anything. So five months passed me by. I get the next email. And somehow, I'm not sure how Daniel had done this, but he like cold called all these other people and like, Jared, we got a team. The all-star team Daniel brought together consists of Dr. Connie Millar, who's a senior research ecologist with the U.S. Forest Service. Dr. David Herbst, who's a research biologist with the Sierra Nevada Aquatic Research Laboratory and with the Marine Science Institute. Sarah Amenzada, who's the Water Program Director with the Pisces Foundation and a member of the California Coastal Commission, and Adam Riffle, who just completed his Rock Glacier Master's degree from Central Washington University. And then, of course, there's Daniel himself, also known as Jorge Daniel Talent, who's the executive director of the Center for Human Rights and Environment. Daniel's worked for the United Nations, the Organization of American States, the World Bank, and the European Union. So now the introductions are done. Daniel, how did you get into rock glaciers in the first place? I remember when Romina, your wife, was the environment minister in, in Argentina. You had, like, there's a lot of politics around glaciers. It turns out a lot of mining in Argentina and in Chile, for that matter, on gold and silver and copper is in prime glacier areas. And one day, this glaciologist, a guy named... Juan Pablo Milana, explosive guy, he comes into the environment industry, sets out a map on the table saying, this mining company is dynamiting glaciers to get a gold. And not only visible glaciers, but these invisible glaciers underneath the ground. And we had no idea what this was about. What we found, though, was that there wasn't a single law in the world, not any country, had a law to protect glaciers. And we started a process to to get the very first glacier law, which was passed a few years later in 2008. Well, it continues to be the only glacier law in the world. It was the first one passed. Uh, basically, it says glaciers are important. They're a water reservoir, but they're also a basin regulator, which means they melt slowly in the summertime. So once all the winter snowpack, you guys, for example, in California, you talk a lot about the winter snowpack. Everyone thinks about that as really, really important, and it is. But once it's gone you need other sources of water. And the rock glaciers and the permafrost and this frozen ground up in the mountains is slowly trickling water into the basins. And so this law that we got passed in Argentina basically protects glaciers, it protects that frozen ground, it protects the rock glaciers, and it expressly forbids mining operations, which was what we were trying to get at, but also oil and gas operations. And we actually had to leave Argentina because of this fight. We were exiled with death threats and all kinds of other persecutions. But we moved to Florida, really, really far from the glaciers, uh, but certainly glacier vulnerable because with sea level rise, with melting glaciers, Florida's largely going to be underwater. Your cryo-activism, your and Romina, actually led 
that's what made you an exile, right? You can't go back there because all those forces of evil that wanted to make money out of blowing up glaciers, that, that's why you can't go back. Yeah, well, we stopped uh, with the glacier law, this first glacier law ever passed, about $25 billion of mining projects that were about to happen in some of the most pristine, glacier-rich, permafrost-rich regions of the uh, central Andes. So that activism led to a lot of uh, bad forces reacting against us, and that, that tends to happen when you're in those, in those fights. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're continuing. We're not stopping. We're still working on this. Okay, so... We're about to head out. It's like a four-hour drive to Levining, where we're going to the campground. And then we're going to head out tomorrow. We're going to do three days, hopefully, if the weather holds, um, where we go and see rock glaciers. You seem excited. Like, I've, not, I've known you a long time. I've never seen you quite this excited. Now, this is, this is really my thing. I love it. It's uh, one of the most passionate things I've done as, a, as an activist for the environment. Cool. Well, let's get in the car and get a move on, because it's getting dark. It's so great to wake up in my tent. Um, we're camping at the Lower Lee Vining Campground, which is just off the Tioga Pass Road that goes into Tuolumne Meadows at the top of Yosemite Valley. The Eastern Sierras are magical and a part of the Great Basin. Here to explain a little bit about the area is Dr. Connie Millar, who spent her career working in these mountains. Connie, what is the Great Basin? The Great Basin is a biogeo region of southwest U.S., and it encompasses about half a million square kilometers. And it includes the um, eastern California from the crest of the Sierra Nevada, southern Oregon, southern Idaho, uh, most of Nevada, and uh, much of western Utah. And it includes lands where waters drain internally into evaporative basins, so no water flows out to oceans. So like Mono Lake, which is pretty close, is one of those? Mono Lake is one of those. There are uh, 635 mountain ranges. Over 40 of them exceed 3,000 meters. So it's a very mountainous region. So you study many different things, but the thing that links them all together is mountains? Absolutely. I like to call myself a mountain scientist, and I will bravely go where I have no training and try to train up and learn what I can. I do my science by storytelling, uh, see something that I don't understand and try to make sense of that through theories that we know. And if that doesn't make sense, um, invent some new ones. So we're here to look at rock glaciers. To be honest, I'd never heard of rock glaciers before, and... And Daniel, you know, just kind of crazily emailed me. Um, and, and luckily, I met you because you're really able to explain what rock glaciers are. So with normal glaciers, you know, especially in the climate literature, we spend a lot of time looking at glacial retreat. Like, this was the glacier. Now look how teeny it is. There's a way of visualizing how, how much we're losing. Um, rock glaciers are kind of a different story because you just see the rocks. But tell us... Like, how did you even first hear about rock glaciers? Yeah, I think when we talk about rock glaciers, the first things people do is roll their eyes um, or glaze their eyes. And then they think you're you're fooling them because rock, glacier, oxymoron doesn't make sense. Uh, so then you have to go from there, which we're doing now. And a lot of... Uh, Slopes that look like just scree slopes or maybe regular moraines from old glaciers are actually what we call rock glaciers. And what they are are slopes of uh, rocky debris, rock boulders that have ice underneath the rocky surfaces. And they can form for several reasons. Um, and they're very hard to 
to determine the ice content underneath because they're covered with a maybe um, 10 feet of, of rock mantle. But they do form glacial ice. They will move and they creep very slowly, at most a meter a year, which is maybe a tenth of what ice glaciers do. And because they're covered with this heavy rocky mantle and it's thick enough that it it insulates them from the warm air outside. If it were very thin, it would conduct heat and maybe melt them faster. But because the rocky mantle is so thick and because there's air in between these rocks, a unique microclimate sets up which actually supercools the interior and serves to, like a freezer, it keeps that ice cold, even if it's above freezing out, out in external temperatures. So these are, we're, we're thinking there's more and more important, not only to get them on the radar as hydrologic reserves, but because as other water sources in mountains are melting, that these will really be the water towers of mountains for the future. And because they're so widely distributed, they serve important not only up uphill for the biota and the plants and animals up in the mountains, but also for downstream resources like mountain meadows, and then of course eventually into basin aquifers for human uses. And how many of these rock glaciers do you think exist just in the Sierras? We mapped 842 over the whole Great Basin. The Sierra has a big share of them. So I'm remembering maybe in the 500 range, and this is only the Eastern Sierra, so I think probably easily twice that many um, over the whole um, Sierra Nevada. And they're mostly in the areas where there was glaciation, so that would be south of Tahoe. Um, of course, once you get up into the Cascades, they're, they start up again. And when you're out in the mountains, I mean, what are the things, when you think about it, that you love the most about being outdoors and being in that experience? Oh, yeah, it's absolutely my place. Um, just one of those situations where you know you're at home and I want to go back and back to the same places. And sometimes I say it's like a lover. You want to know every angle and um, from from all sides and ex- all experiences. So I think it's more when you find your your identity and your place that, that makes you feel whole. That's where you want to know more. And it's all a mystery to me. Everything is a big mystery. I think probably I was imprinted as a child by my parents who took me to the mountains. In this rapid world, we need some quietude around us. And I'm sure there are other ways of finding it and getting it, but this is maybe one that touches our, our origins the best. So today, what are we going to go and see, Connie? Yeah, we're going up to Cedar Rock Glacier. It has a very steep front, big kind of, almost looks like a lava flow, if you can imagine that, and steep sides. And this one has a big spring coming out of it, and um, our colleague Dave Herbst will be interested in looking at that for stream sampling. So I think we'll be able to get up onto the top of it and look across that's very undulating surface, and then also look at the springs and maybe do some sampling today. So after a few hours of climbing, we arrive at a stream flowing from what has all the hallmarks of a rock glacier. Now it's time for some science with Dr. David Hurst and his trusty lab technician, Sarah Amanzada. So David, what are we, what are we doing here? Um, looking for a pen to record the data. <laughs> okay, so a pen is a pretty critical piece of information. It's, it's kind of an important implement of uh, scientific investigation, so... Hopefully, we can come up with something instead of having to remember the numbers until we get back. Oh, wait a minute. I found it. I found my pen. He's got his pen. It's all good. It's all good, people. I found the official scientific pen here. 
Okay, okay so, so now you got your yellow notebook. So, Connie, what we need is a GPS coordinates here. Yeah, we'll get them. Okay, so we're starting off just by locating ourselves. And this is uh, Barney Lake Rock Glacier pilot sample number one. And what we're looking at here is uh, a few measurements of water chemistry because rock glaciers may have a unique water chemistry signature. And so we have a pH of 7.65. We have a conductivity of 26 and we have a temperature of 3 degrees Celsius. We're at 10,451 feet. We are seeing a very cold temperature here, um, though it wouldn't be surprising to see a lot of streams around here be maybe as cold as 3C, especially springs. But, but upstream Connie's measure temperatures as low as 1 degree C that's more or less constant year round. Okay, so that's a pretty characteristic thing for a, a rock glacier. It's basically refrigerated water regardless of what time of the year. Oh, oh, can I do that? We got a little net. Yeah, do you want to take a sample? Yeah. Okay, okay so you got the glove on. So one of the critters that actually live in this freezing water are midges, which I thought were just annoying cousins to mosquitoes, but apparently do other things than bite me. What do the midges eat? They eat a variety of different things. The ones that are living in, that I think we're gonna find in this stream, uh, eat algae. But there are predatory midges. There are midges that eat fine particulate organic matter, little bits of organic matter that come off of decomposing leaves and wood that fall into the stream. There's also midges that feed on the decomposing wood itself. They uh, tear apart the wood and tear apart the leaves with specialized mouth parts. And uh, there's also midges. Are you like a midge expert? It, pretty much, okay. yeah. There's not, there's not many of us, but I am a midge expert. Okay, here we go. This is the exciting part. So we're stirring up the stream bottom here in an area that's approximately equal to the width of the net and letting the current carry critters down into it. Foot. Is there now? Yeah. Not aquatic. No. Okay, so that looks like that's good for that sample. We're gonna put the sample in the bucket and have a look, see what we got. So do you think these midges could be like a signature of rock glaciers? Indeed, cold water, constant cold water conditions, I do believe they would be. So um, let's have a look here, preliminary. So we see a lot of stuff suspended. None of it's really moving though. Yeah, you have to wait a minute here. Okay, so here. Have you found one? Here's the case of a caddisfly. So caddisflies build a case out of stones hmm. that is both for protection and to create a water current around their body. I don't see anything in there, but I'm not a trained eye. Yeah, I don't see anything. Sarah, yes. I mean, we need a trained eye. Are you, do you see any midges in there? Yes. You've been doing this for a while. When yeah. did you start doing this? Certainly the possibility of the branches and debris suggests the possibility of midge. We won't know until we get back to the lab. <laughs> She just fell in the water. Yeah, okay, nice job, Sarah. Okay, so now we're gonna get another bucket. This is gonna be my bucket. 
Oh, you're gonna do just what you saw me do. You're gonna collect it into the net and then dip the net in the water right. so everything's in the bottom of the net and then turn it inside out into the bucket here. I don't see anything I'm moving either. Still not seeing anything moving around. I don't yet see the expected midges, so that's interesting. We've got some variety represented here. Oh, Dave, sorry. I was watching and nearly fell in the water there. Okay. So, so why are you interested, David, in rock glaciers? Well, rock glaciers are the potential refuge habitat from drought conditions. If you have a rock glacier at the head of your watershed and there is continuous flow associated with those because they basically are a refrigerated source of water that is melting only very slowly, then that should be a factor that contributes to um, the uh, resiliency of that system to becoming intermittent. So you're more likely in the outflows of rock glaciers to find uh, continuous perennial flow even during those um, climate change induced drought conditions that we find increasingly so in headwater streams. When do you think this water froze? How, I mean if it is a glacier how old is the water going in the stream past us right now? Um, I can't say that I know for sure but we just collected some water chemistry samples and I'm hoping that there may be a chemical signature that's associated with the melt coming from those glaciers that's very different than what you'd find coming from either snow melt, rainfall, or groundwater sources. So we will be hoping to answer that question uh, by looking at the water chemistry. So this is like cutting edge science. No one even knows if there's a signature attributable to rock glaciers. And that's why I'm here to study this, because other people haven't done it. When you go look in places nobody's looked before, you're bound to find something different. Do you think it would be appropriate to put all our names on your first, like, Nobel-winning scientific <laughs> paper? Because we were here with you. Yeah, I'll tell that to the Nobel committee when... Uh... Okay. David's just spending a lot of time because he wants his Nobel, but we, need, we, we might need to go. People are getting cold, apparently. They don't, they don't have the scientific rigor. Let's look, see if we've got any midges. Sarah, what have you been doing here? <laughs> Can I use my Jared voice? Sure, try your Jared voice. So, what we've been doing here... <laughs> so, hi. You've reached Jared Blumenfeld. Please have a message, thanks. Um, we're testing for silica, which tells us um, how much this water's been interacting with rocks, which in turn tells us, um, is this water that's flowing directly off rock glaciers, um, is it from a tributary or is it from another source? And uh, that's really what we're doing. Before we head off the freezing mountain, I asked Daniel what it feels like standing on top of a Sierra Nevada rock glacier for the very first time. I'm excited, this is, this is my thing. I love being here. I don't get out often to the mountains, so just being here is fantastic. Uh, I'm in heaven. Uh, we got the mountains all around us, the rocks everywhere. Uh, you can see this beast up in the mountain giving us water. We we're at, just at the head of the glacier, at the snout as it's called, and you can see the stream trickling out. It's just magical, I love it. And also just around us, I mean, it's a stunning, like all the aspens are turning yellow and gold. I mean, it feels like snow's nearly in the air, I mean. This rock glacier looks pretty cool. I'm not as excited because I don't quite understand it as much. Can't wait to, for tomorrow and 
got like a three mile hike out and the wind the wind is blowing hard it is and, and the thing is most people when they go on these treks you go up pretty high but then when it starts getting really windy and cold and you're almost at the at the highest point you, you stop and turn back and the rock glaciers are usually just a bit further and that's why so few people get up to these places and that's why also so few people know about these environments this paraglacial environment where you find the rock glaciers they're just really out there and you have to really go far to get to these uh, ice bodies back down at our base camp i ask adam riffle how he got roped into this rock glacier extravaganza i did my master's thesis on rock glaciers and daniel found it online um, and he contacted me in the spring and said hey i'm putting together this trip with all these interesting people, you want to come? And I said, heck yeah, I do. Down to the Sierras? That sounds awesome. We all got roped into this by Daniel, and it's turning out to be an amazing trip. So this is our last morning in camp, and it just snowed. Yeah, it did. We woke up with a dusting all over the tents. It was a chilly night. Luckily, I was cozied up in my zero-degree bag, which was nice. I think it's probably below freezing this morning. If you're ever going to go out, I think between like September and maybe April, you need a zero degree bag. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the weather in the mountain can change at a moment's notice. That's always important to think about. You've got to be prepared for all, the, all that it has to throw your way. So you're about to do your master's degree. How the hell did you come? I mean, no one's ever heard of rock glaciers. <laughs> now you're going to be like the rock glacier expert. I had never heard of rock glaciers either. But once I started to look into them, and once I realized how little research there has been on them and how little people know about them, um, it really heightened my interest. And so right now, rock glaciers are reacting to climate maybe even 100 or so years ago, and they haven't caught up yet. As temperatures increase and we get less and less snow throughout Uh, the winter season, glaciers aren't able to keep up to basically, the snow recharges them. So if we're getting less snow, glaciers are going to melt more than they're gaining in the summer season. Um, As opposed to rock glaciers, which have that thick outer rocky debris coating and are able to withstand uh, the current effects of climate change. Has to be said that everyone else left their tents to go and get coffee. We're the only ones at camp. So, Adam, how are rock glaciers formed? This has been explained to me by different people, but I'm hoping that you're actually going to be able to explain it. Well, there's multiple ways that rock glaciers form. Um, One of which is you have an ice glacier, a normal ice glacier, and then you have massive amounts of rock fall that coat the top of it. And so you end up with this solid ice core and thick outer rocky debris coating, again, which is resilient to climate change. The other way is if you picture just a boulder field or a normal pile of rocks, and then some water will seep into that, then it will freeze, and then due to the forces of gravity and the fact that ice is easily manipulated, um, it will begin to creep down slope. And so instead of a solid ice core, you'll have an interstitial ice core. It's a matrix of rock and ice and other debris. Um, And as a result, those rock glaciers uh, have lower ice contents. So that's probably around 50% ice, as opposed to a glaciogenic or a solid ice core rock glacier, 
which will probably have something more like 70% ice. So if you, you showed me a picture, like you've actually climbed down and looked in. Yeah, so some rock glaciers, the boulders, that thick outer rocky debris coating is so, the boulders are so massive that you can crawl within the cavities of them and get down to the surface of the ice. It doesn't sound like very many people have ever seen the ice in a rock glacier, so I'm glad I'll never probably see it. But for your word, like everyone else is like, yeah, yeah, there's ice under there, but they've never <laughs> seen the ice. But you actually seen the ice, so, I, I have, so you're an authority. Yes, I have seen the ice, and that's what I was looking for on the rock glaciers that we've, we've visited so far. Because again, it is, it is a sight to see. That's the biggest problem with rock glaciers is since they're covered and coated in rocks, it's really hard to figure out just exactly how much ice is within them and how that ice is interacting with the rock and how that ice is melting seasonally. And those are the questions that I'm after um, and that really all uh, people in the rock glacier community are after because those are the important questions. Like the six of you. Like the six of us, exactly. <laughs> there, there, aren't, there aren't very many. Um, Can you count them on two hands? It might take three, but okay. yes. <laughs> so now when you're hiking, do you like see rock glaciers everywhere? Whereas before you just saw a beautiful hillside, now you see, oh, there's a rock glacier. There's another rock glacier. There's a rock glacier. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's crazy. Now that I know what I'm looking for, they're all over the place. I mean, they exist in basically every mountain range all over the world. So yeah, I see them everywhere. I think about them in my sleep. I, I can't get away. <laughs> As Dr. Connie Millar joins our conversation, I ask her if she too sees patterns of rock glaciers in the landscape. I'm fascinated by pattern formation. I think most scientists are in it partly because it tells us uh, it's a starting point for understanding process, which we're also interested in so that we can understand some situation over here that's different, maybe only slightly different. Can we borrow that knowledge of process in one place and adapt it to something that we didn't understand? Um, there's something that's very compelling about understanding process, not just form. We have this internal capacity to recognize pattern, and especially when pattern when something's different from the pattern. So, would we would you recommend, Connie, that people go in search of rock glaciers, or like is this is this the domain of like expert scientists? Oh, oh absolutely, you can see them. First of all, because they're everywhere, and. Um, they're very easy to recognize once you get your imprint for them. Like most things with pattern, once you get an imprint, you'll see the butterfly there that you just walked over before. So recognizing that they have these very steep fronts, we say over-steepened, meaning they're beyond the angle of repose. If you put a rock on the edge, it would fall down, but because of the ice inside, they're being held up. So kind of like a lava flow again, but in a high cirque um, location. A cirque is the amphitheater-like top of glacial canyons. In terms of your own mortality and age, you, you are working with things that are millennia or, or even, you know, in many cases, millions of years in the making. Like, how does it, how does it contextualize your own life? I try to uh, keep a periscope up and down, a, a time periscope, if you will, that I try to be in the moment always. But if you're just in the moment, you're not in those cool places that are a million years ago and also maybe 20,000 years into the future. So I try to keep the perspective of all times whenever I'm specifically focused on one time. We had an amazing venture out in the eastern Sierra looking for rock glaciers. 
But eventually the weather got the better of us and we headed back to the city. At home with Daniel before he heads off to Florida, we go into my kitchen. So what are we doing now? What are we creating, Daniel? I'm going to show you how to make your own rock glacier right in your freezer. And this is basically reproducing the cryogenic processes that happen up in the mountains with all the little rocks that are on the mountainside. So basically take... Okay, so you've got some rocks in your hand. Yeah, and a little Tupperware. And what we're going to do is we're going to put each of these little rocks, we're going to fill the Tupperware, right? And it's about halfway. So it's covering about half the depth of the Tupperware. Then we're going to pour water into into the Tupperware. Okay, so we're going to fill the water level to the top of the rocks, and then we're going to take that and we're going to throw it in the freezer. And we're going to let it freeze. Okay, let's put it in the freezer. All right, all right, let's go over here. Put it in the freezer. Okay, we put it in the freezer. Now we're going to close the door and we're going to leave it there. Now, okay, now let's pretend that like... Like three hours go by. Okay, three, three okay. hours just okay. go by. Okay, perfect. Now we're going to open again. Let's Excellent. Open. Let's see what we got. All right, hold on a second. We're getting it. All right. Here's one we made earlier. <laughs> exactly. So now we've got this Tupperware that it's, it just has a blob of rocks and ice, right? You can see it's all mixed up. Now we're just going to set it out on the table. And we're going to wait about 20, 30 minutes till about half of it melts. So what's happening? We're reproducing nature. So during the evening, all the dew and any rain or snow that has turned to water and seeps into the rocks and in between the rocks, at night when it gets cold, it freezes. That was when we put it in the refrigerator. During the day, it all heats up again, right? And it starts to melt. Now that's where it's it's now. Right, so it's melted. So now we put it back in the freezer? Before it fully melts, we're going to put it back in the freezer. So let's go put it back in the freezer. All right. Put it in, there we go. Now we're gonna let it refreeze. Now what do you think is gonna happen? All the water that seeped down while it was melting is out at the bottom and it's gonna refreeze and you're gonna get about a half inch of ice. And then, all right, now we're gonna fast forward three hours actually. Yeah, so for another three hours, okay, okay wow. We're, we're taking it out and here we go. You see what happened? Yeah, all the rocks are on the top. Well, not all of them, but a lot of them are on the top and you have Compared a little- to before. Right, compared to before, but you have a little thin ice layer at the bottom. Now, if we did that five or six times, that cycle, by the end, you would have all of the rocks on the top and all of the ice on the bottom. It's a great little experiment you can do at home with your kids. Uh, They have to be super patient. Exactly. But basically, after the fourth or fifth cycle, you will have a rock glacier right in your Tupperware, in your freezer, right at home. All the ice at the bottom, all the rocks at the top. And you'll be a cool rock star. There you go. You can take this experiment to your teacher. Your teacher probably has no idea what a rock glacier is. So you get a lot of points for that. Nice. So science day is coming up. Daniel just gave you an A+. We've had an amazing few days. And uh, I just want to thank you for bringing us all together and for helping me become a rock glacier advocate, which I now consider myself. And we've got to protect these things because... Everything else is going to hell in a handbasket, but it seems like rock glaciers, because they're insulated, they're slowing stuff down, and they're providing water in drought years, and we need to continue your amazing work to identify them. A huge thank you to Daniel Talent, Dr. Connie Millar, Dr. David Hurst, Sarah Amenzada, and Adam Riffle for opening my eyes to rock glaciers. Just like Monty Python's search for the Holy Grail, a great deal of the fun we had was for hunting for these little studied but critical water sources. The good news 
is that rock glaciers can be found in large numbers in many of the world's mountain ecosystems and can provide critical cold water supply during drought. Next time you're out hiking, be sure to include a rock glacier sighting detour in your plans. And if your kids or you are in need of a cool science project for school, Daniel's rock glacier freezer experiment will hit the mark. And rock glaciers aside, I had an absolute blast spending the weekend in the Eastern Sierra. I really appreciated being back in nature. In the next episode of Podship Earth, we go to Mono Lake, which is the size of San Francisco and looks like Mars. It's also the flyway for a great many migratory birds. Mono Lake was on the brink of collapse because LA was taking too much of its water. Then, in 1978, a few hippie scientists banded together to save this incredible gem. And today, Mono Lake is an example of how we can save the rest of the planet. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, executive producer David Kahn, guest producer and science coordinator Sarah Amenzada, and from me, Jerry Blumenfeld, I hope that you have a rock glacier sighting in your very near future. Mm-hmm.